It's a blast to be with you guys uh, today. Um, flew in a little bit late last night, got into the hotel, uh, and decided that the loneliest, the loneliest job in Atlanta last night, uh, as I was walking through the lobby, I saw off to my left uh, the, the, the bartender. The loneliest job in Atlanta is the bartender at the Speaker's Hotel during a Baptist convention. I mean, the speakers will come before or after the convention to the bar, but during the convention, none of us will go there. So, um, yeah, it's fun to be with you guys. As John said, I've uh, been in ministry for, for about 30 years, uh, spent uh, 15 years or 14 years down in Houston, Texas, was a uh, children's pastor, a youth pastor. Uh, for a, a few years, I was I was senior pastor, church planter, and then moved back in 96 to uh, Seacoast Church out in Charleston, South Carolina. My brother Greg had planted it a few years before, and you know, that was fun. We had a blast there in Charleston. We saw the church just kind of explode in growth, and eventually in 2002, we ran out of room in our buildings, and so we started expanding through multi-site. Nobody was doing that at the time, or very few people were, and so we were kind of figuring it out as, as we went and saw the church grow from one site to 14 sites over about an eight-year period. And, and uh, then spent a year after that, uh, 2010, or actually 2011, spent a year out in California with Rick Warren on staff at Saddleback Church. And we, uh, church planning pastor, we, we uh, strategize about how to plant churches around the country and around the world. It also oversaw their campuses. They have eight or nine campuses out there. And then about seven months ago, we left uh, Saddleback. My wife became the president of a group called uh, Mops International. Some of you guys may, may have heard of them. They're located in Denver. And I took a role with Exponential. We do a church planning conference. I'm the uh, director of Exponential now. And so in, the, in April every year, we do a church planning conference down in Orlando. Those of you who are into church planning, we'd love to have you this year. Um, in fact, we're, we're about halfway to sold out. So we'd love for you to register. Our theme this year is going to be discipleship. And um, Francis Chan is going to be with us. Craig Groeschel. Uh, a lot of the leading discipleship voices are going to be there. So we'd love to, love to have you in April. And so part of my time I spend working with Exponential, part of my time I spend consulting. And, and one of the things that I love to talk about is what we're going to talk about today, which is leadership development. And so I'm, I'm excited about that topic. Before I dive into the topic, let me go through just a couple of things real quick. First of all, if you would ever like to connect with me for any reason, maybe during the talk today something will spark something you'd like to talk about or you'd like to, you know, just throw a question out going on with your church or however. These are four ways to connect with me. Honestly, the best way uh, is probably through email if you have a question or something like that. And I warn you, if you follow me on Twitter, I, I am not the sharpest knife in the drawer. And so the stuff I Twitter will probably just be a waste of your, your screen space. So I don't know that you would, you would want to go there. Someone uh, uh, replied to me the other day and they said, wow, I can't believe you wasted a tweet on that. And I replied back to them and said, if you saw the other 10,000 things I tweeted, you'd think that was pretty cool. You know? so, so I'm warning you about that. A couple other things, commercials almost over. Had the opportunity to work with some other guys and write a couple of books about multi-site. The multi-site church revolution, uh, Greg Ligon and Warren Bird and I wrote that back a couple years ago. And then the multi-site road trip we wrote. So if your church is doing multi-site or thinking about that in the future, those are a couple of resources. I think they're available here 
uh, or they're available on, on Amazon. Um, I really need you to buy those books. I make 12 cents a piece off of every copy. So if all of you bought one, I could go to Starbucks afterwards. So that, but I think they are good resources. And then the last one, uh, 10 Stupid Things That Keep Churches From Growing. I wrote that by myself. It's kind of based on some of the Actually, a lot of the mistakes that I have made as a pastor through the years, uh, Larry Osborne calls it the dumb tax. If I can save you some dumb tax, that would be great. So um, you might be interested in that. So those, those are some of the books. But what I want to do, though, is I want to dive into this idea of leadership development. Um, let me just throw something out. You'll have to shout out loud. But I, I think that there are top, two top two issues that are top two issues in church planting. What do you guys think? What's one of those top issues? Money. What else? People. People. The two I've identified, and you're right on the same line as what I would say, the two things I've identified are money and leaders. Money and people, leaders, same thing. Um, Again, you'll see my sense of humor does not translate very well in a lot of environments, especially this one. So I'm just kind of there for you. and you know what? A lot of church planners, if they were honest, they would say, if I had more money, I could have more leaders because then I could hire people. I could afford to go on cool leadership retreats. We live in Denver. You could come out there and take your leadership team to Breckenridge and ski all winter. I mean, who couldn't have leaders then? And what I would say is if you had more leaders, you'd probably have more money. So whichever way you look at it, these are two huge needs. This need for leaders I discovered as a church planter. And I... I I have to have a little caveat there. I didn't actually plant the church. It was a going church when I got there. When I arrived, there were 11 adults that attended the church. So as you can see, it was pretty... In fact, it was one of those churches... Have any of you guys ever candidated for a position where you had to try out and preach and get voted on? Anybody ever do that? A few of us have. Isn't that wonderful? It's just the funnest experience. It's like American Idol for pastors, right? So... So I get there on Sunday morning, I preach my best message, I come back on Sunday night and have cake and Kool-Aid. It's like the cake and Kool-Aid interrogation, right? Where they ask you anything they want to. So they ask me all these questions, all 11 of them, and then they go away and vote. And then I found out, I won in a landslide, by the way, I'm very proud of this, 9-4, one against, one abstention. So I'm there at the church for about three months. The lady comes up to me and says, did you hear what the vote count was when we voted on you? I said, yeah, I did. Did did you remember that there was one who abstained? I said, yeah, I did. And she said, well, I was the one who abstained. And when you came, I didn't feel like I knew you well enough to vote. Now that I know you, my husband and I will be leaving the church. (laughs) Well, thank you, ma'am. Thank you for sharing that. I feel better. And I realized right away, I need leaders Now, one of the things I need leaders for is when I went to the church, we did Sunday school, Sunday morning, Sunday night, Wednesday night. When I first went, I was the Sunday school teacher. I preached on Sunday morning. I preached on Sunday night. I preached on Wednesday night. I don't want to hear me four times. I don't have that much to say. There's no way that I could fill four times. So immediately, I needed someone to lead the adult Sunday school there. I found a guy who just showed up at our church one day. Unbelievable. This guy was a former pastor. Okay. He was pretty much a Christian. and, and, And he could read. And so he was definitely qualified to be the Sunday school teacher. 
Now you laugh about the read part. The guy I followed couldn't read, literally. Illiterate Sunday school teacher. So, so this was great. Here's a, here's a, almost a, he's pretty much a Christian. He's a former pastor. He can read. You're the Sunday school teacher. So I made him the Sunday school teacher. Such a relief. And then as I got to know him a little bit better and found out a little bit more about him, I found out why he wasn't a pastor anymore. And, you know, we all make mistakes. I get that. I also found out why he didn't actually have a job and the fact that he was running from the IRS and he had moved there to hide and now he was running our adult Sunday school at the church. So I thought, okay, that's not going to work. So I needed to develop a leader and a guy had committed his life to church or his life to Christ at the church. We were beginning to see new, new believers come in and, and started to see some potential in this guy and got to know him a little bit and started asking him to do a little bit more and a little bit more at the church. And finally, I was, I was ready to really move forward in leadership with Mark. And so I'm talking to Mark and I said, Mark, I want to talk to you about taking a bigger role at the church. And Mark said, oh, yeah, okay, pastor, what? Whatever you need. You need to know something, though, Pastor. I, I get nervous when I'm around a lot of people. I said, well, that's okay, Mark. Everybody's nervous in front of people. He said, no, no, just, I don't have to be in front of them, just around them. And I said, well, I, I understand, Mark. And he said, well, you understand, when I come to church, it makes, it makes me a little nervous. I said, don't worry about it, dude. We can work on that. He said, Pastor, what you don't understand is the way I calm my nerves is every Sunday on my way to church, I smoke a joint in the car. I said, well, Mark, can you read? Um, (laughs) Leadership development. It was just huge. Well, the good news is, it's about the same time, the leadership development industry just was exploding. I mean, John Maxwell was writing books. Everybody was writing books. I mean, there were books everywhere. And I started reading all of those books. In fact, I searched on Amazon this week, just typed in leadership on Amazon under books, over 40,000 leadership books on Amazon. There's resources everywhere. And then not only books, but classes on leadership, seminars on leadership, conferences on leadership. Man, we could... Leadership was just coming out everywhere. You can find it everywhere you look. I've come to a conclusion, though, after 30 years of being involved in church ministry, on staff, as a pastor, in different roles, reading every leadership book, going to all the leadership conferences, teaching leadership classes, a couple of things I've, my own, my own ideas, or my own thought. But the first thing is I've kind of come to the conclusion that we have said everyone's a leader and not everyone's a leader. People are good people, great people, have gifts, but there's a gifting of leadership that's not in everybody. And when we try to develop everyone into leaders, it's kind of like teaching a pig to sing, you know? It irritates, you waste your time and it irritates the pig. I mean, that's kind of the deal. And so we got to think through that. The second conclusion I've come to is leadership development classes don't work. Leadership classes don't develop leaders. Now, information is important. I love all the books and everything that I've read. It's been very, very helpful. But in the end, there's no class. There's no kit. At the end of this, I'm not going to tell you, go in the back and for $99.95, I've got a video kit and you take it home and it'll develop leaders in your church. I'd love to do that because I'd make more money than the 12 cents per book. But at the end of the day, it wouldn't develop a single leader in your church. After 30 years, my conclusion is, and I don't don't mean this in an overly spiritual way at all. In fact, I mean it almost in a non-spiritual way, 
It, leadership development, the only leadership development pattern that works is what Jesus did. And the only way we can develop leaders is to literally go back into the Gospels, read through the Gospels, and really break down why did Jesus do that? Why did Jesus do this? You see, it wasn't just the story of Jesus' life because as John tells us, he left a lot of stories out. There was a lot more that Jesus did. So Jesus very intentionally made sure that we understood what he did, how he did it, and we have to figure out the why, and that's how we develop leaders. So what I want to do is I just want to give you 10 principles that in my life I have, I have begun to apply in developing leaders, and it's, it's trying to learn from how how did Jesus develop leaders? The first thing that Jesus did to develop leaders is he spent time observing potential leaders. He took his time observing potential leaders. Um, if you look through the Gospel of Mark, you'll find that it wasn't until the sixth chapter, and you know, Mark just dives right in, no, no birth narrative, none of that. He dives right in to Jesus' public ministry. But it wasn't until the sixth chapter that Jesus was teaching a bunch of people. He called a group away, right? He called them up on the mountain with him. And it was at that point he said, you, 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 you're leaders. He spent several weeks, probably several months, getting to know these people before he appointed them leaders or made them part of his inner circle of leadership. Now, now think through that for just a minute. Jesus had his public ministry was how long? It was about three years, right? He knew he had three years to accomplish all the things he had to accomplish. He had to set the foundation for the church that would go from then forever. He had three years to do that. And yet, even with that kind of time pressure, he still felt like he needed to slow down, take time, get to know people before he made them leaders. I want to share with you in each one of these a mistake and then some practical steps. The mistake we make is we just go too fast. We go too fast with leaders. And, and why do we go too fast? Because we need leaders. We desperately need children's leaders and small group leaders and worship leaders and, and greeters and ushers. We need, we need those things. We cannot do what God called us to do without these leaders. I was working at uh, Seacoast Church in, in, in South Carolina, and we were experiencing this rapid growth. And it seemed like every new family that came into the church had like 10 kids. You know, I mean, they were just popping out kids left and right. I mean, we wanted to do a series on celibacy just to slow down the children's ministry. So we had a constant need for children's workers, children's leaders, and Wah! This lady shows up. Her name's Kay. She's in her tw early 20s. She's very much a committed Christian. She has experience in children's ministry. She loves kids. She wants to get involved. We did all the right things. We did the background check and you know, all that stuff. It all came out clean. And we said, oh, Kay, oh, we're so glad. We put her in children's ministry. She was awesome. She started her own children's small group, her own small group for little girls. She created a team of leaders around her. That team of leaders went to an orphanage and began ministering there. They started bringing orphans from the orphanage to the church on Sundays. She was there Sunday morning. She was there Wednesday night. She, she was there early. She stayed late. Everything was unbelievable. In fact, my daughter was in her small group and it was great. There was after about six or eight months, though, we started to notice some challenges, some cracks, and so we started to investigate, get to know a little more, a little more, a little more. And what we discovered is a small flaw, not a big thing. The only flaw with Kay is she was completely nuts. I mean, she was crazy. Um, 
What's the psychological term for it? Nuts. She was. She, and here's the deal. And this is free and this is a side deal. But you're going to find out. And if you've been in ministry a long time, you've already figured this out. Those volunteer leaders who are so committed, the ones that are up at 2 a.m. emailing you new ideas, the ones who stay until midnight after every service, the ones who have never missed those, they're nuts, okay? They, they have words like bipolar and manic depressive, things like that. Very often, if you stay around, I see people nodding, you, you've got the t-shirt, don't you? Yeah. And it, it's not good. And so that's why you spend time with leaders, okay? Let me give you a practical step. The practical step here is don't give titles, okay? When you plant a church, or you start, start with somebody new, a new leader, don't give them a title. Don't call them, oh, you're the youth director. You're the children's director. You're the small group director. Don't, just don't give any of those titles. Here's how you do it. Hey, dude, you seem to have a real connection with, with, with students, and we have a bunch of students we would love to see you kind of work with a little bit. Could you spend like a couple months, three months, six months, whatever, and, and work with our students for a while? We'd love that. And that's all you do. That's the total assignment. Because once you give a title, then that title is hard to take away. So, so just trust me on this one. Don't give titles. The second thing is give small assignments. And rather than saying, hey, oh, we're so glad you showed up, we need you to take over our whole greeting ministry and our parking and our ushers. Do all of that. Now just break it up in the beginning. Little assignments, baby steps, bite-sized things. Not because you'll overwhelm them, but because you don't want to give away too much until you know who you're dealing with and what they're doing. And then a third practical step is just to go slow. You're going to hear something from me that you're probably not going to hear at a lot of other church planting workshops or or conferences. And that is, I think one of the challenges in church planting in America today is we're trying to microwave it, okay? We're creating models where we have to get to X in this amount of time or we can't feed our kids, literally, okay? And I'm begging, pleading, asking, if you're a denominational leader, if you're a area leader, if you're a church planter, let's figure out a model where we can do what Jesus did. I mean, it seems like a good idea. He did it. He went slow. He took his time. The first day he met Peter, he didn't say, dude, you're going to run the church. No, that was well into the process. Let's create a, a, a system, a model where we can take our time in developing leaders. So go slow. The second thing that Jesus did is he handpicked his leaders. Um, take a look at uh, Mark chapter 3, and it says this. Uh, and he went, he went up into the mountain, and he called to him those whom he desired. And they came to him, and he appointed 12 whom he also named apostles, so that they might be with him, and that he might send them out to preach. Um, notice that Jesus never put out a sign-up sheet. Jesus never said, uh, when, he was, when he was feeding, when he had the 5,000 the, the 5, and he was teaching them, and at the end of it, you remember the, you know, the disciples, they broke the bread and the fish and they handed it all out. Jesus didn't say, hey, I need some guys to help me pick up uh, leftover food at the end of the conference today. And so if I could have a team captain from here and a team captain from there and a team captain from there. He never said, you know what, 
we're, we're a couple shy on disciples, um, and I need a couple of new disciples. There's a sign-up sheet in the back. If you'll just give me your name and email, I'll follow up with you, and we'll, we'll get you through disciple training, right? Never did that. Jesus handpicked every disciple. He said, I want you and you and you. You could not self-appoint yourself. You could not opt in. You couldn't apply for the job. It was all hand, hand-picked leadership. Here's what happens with sign-up sheets, with, with opt-in type of leadership. Your children's director will come to you. If she hasn't, she will. And she desperately needs more volunteers. In fact, if we don't get more volunteers, here's what we're going to do. We're just going to start taping the kids with duct tape to the wall. And your answer to that is, I suggested that months ago. And no, 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 no. So here's what happens. You get this pressure. Finally, you say, okay, I'll do it. I'll ask for volunteers. And, and, and you get up on Sunday and you say, hey, I got to tell you guys, we don't have enough volunteers and I don't know what to do. In fact, I want you to meet one of our children. And you bring little five-year-old Tommy up there. And Tommy, he's his hair is kind of messed up. He's got a little snot on his nose and he's, he's a little dirty. And you say, now poor little Tommy here. We don't have a teacher for Tommy this morning. And, and because of this, you know, you know Tommy, Tommy's probably going to go to hell because of this. And Tommy, Tommy, do you want to go to hell, sweetheart? No, I don't want to go to hell. Well, if he does, it's on you because you won't volunteer as a leader. And some of you are going, that's the best thing I've gotten. I'm doing that when we get back, right? I was in a church a few weeks ago and they didn't do that. But they did, and I won't tell you what it is, but they did one of the most uh, 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 coercive things I've ever seen to get people to volunteer. The whole service was around, get your name on the sheet, get your name on the sheet. We need you to sign up now. There's a sheet in your pew. Pull it out. Write your name. I'll spell it for you. Get it in. And let me tell you what happens when you do that. You get a good response, especially if you'll do the Tommy thing. I've done it. It's, it's strong. But you'll get a good response. A good part of those people won't be qualified, so you'll have to weed them out, and you know how to do that. You weed them out. Then the people that are left, they're going to leave the same way they came in, okay? You got them to sign up on a sheet. They're going to sign up. They're going to show up a couple of times, and then, gosh, we're going to be out of town for, oh, eight months, so we won't be here for a while. I do, I, do this for me. Do me a favor. When you get back, if you're a leader in a church, Find your children's ministry director and say, okay, the last time we did the big push for the volunteer sign-up people, six months ago, what percentage of those people are still faithful volunteers in our children's ministry? If it's over 20%, you email me and I'll send you for free an email saying, wow, okay, so just (laughs) trust me on this. So, so what are the practical steps of, on, on uh, handpicking? Uh, leadership through relationship. Uh, Jesus never had a leader that he didn't know. He got to know them first. He hung out with them. He was friends with them. He knew their wife. We'll talk about that later. He knew, he knew their kids. He knew all of that. Uh, your circle of leaders, you can't know every leader as your church grows, but you, you should have a circle of leaders around you, a leadership circle. And that leadership circle should be Uh, And I say guys, I'm from the Midwest, and so guys is gender neutral. But that leadership circle should be guys that you have gone to one-on-one personally, got to know them, and said, dude, I want you to be a part of this group of people that I meet with. I want to build into you. I see something in you, and I I just want you to be a part of this group. And that's how you build 
your leadership, your leadership development, is handpicking your leaders. The third thing that Jesus did is he taught leadership along the way. If you read through the Gospels, you'll never see that Jesus had a leadership seminar. You'll never see that he arranged chairs in rows and he stood in front and he handed out fill-in-the-blank notes and said, okay, we're talking leadership this week. Is there anything wrong with that? No. But we keep doing it over and over and over again and Jesus never did. And so I have to ask myself either... Jesus didn't really know what he was doing. He would have done better if we could have taught him a couple things about how to develop leaders or we're wasting our stinking time, okay? So that, anyway, look at what Jesus did. Uh, truly I say to you, uh, oh, well, here's the, the situation. You guys remember this. Jesus is walking along. He sees a fig tree. He's hungry. He goes over to get a fig. No figs. And Jesus curses the fig tree. And then the guys go on, and then they come back, and the fig tree is dead, right? And the, and the disciples are like, Jesus, what in the world? Look at that tree. It's already dead. And this is what Jesus says. Truly I say to you, if you have faith and do not doubt, you will not only do what has been done to the fig tree, but even if you say to this mountain, be taken up and thrown into the sea, it will happen. And whatever you ask in prayer, you will receive if you have faith. What Jesus is doing here is he's teaching, he's teaching leadership development along the way. And what we do, the mistake that we make, is we confuse information transfer with leadership development. We think that if we can get people to think the right things, to read the right things, to know the right things, they'll become become effective leaders. When the reality is, is that's just information transfer. It's good. It's important. It's good that people read the right books and know the right things. But unless there's a relational leader with them. Here's what happened to us when I was at Seacoast. We had a great um, plan for leadership development. We created a website that had uh, all kinds of resources on it. It had video resources, had reading resources. It had uh, steps to take and things that you could do to become a leader. But we knew that that by itself wouldn't do any good. And so we also had a mentoring program attached attached to it. And what we discovered is that people would try out the information thing for a little while and then they would quit. But if there wasn't a direct one-on-one mentor connected to them, then it went nowhere. And in fact, people would quit using it at all. And what we discovered a little further along the line is most of our leaders had never been mentored. Most of our leaders had never been in a one-on-one or a one-on-five mentoring relationship. And now we were saying to them, you need to go out and do what you have never done. And so they would politely say, oh, yes, absolutely. Oh, no doubt. And then they wouldn't do it because they had no idea how to do it. And so this, this uh, great idea we had kind of spun its wheels because there was no, uh, the, the relational component wasn't working along, alongside of it. So we had to back up and go, okay, well, hang on. We need to work on that mentor piece. And we can use the information as a supplement, but it's the mentoring, it's the relationship is where the leadership development is taking place. Is, is taking place. This is not good. Hey, we're back. That's great. <clears throat> It's really great because my notes are on here. So if it goes away, hey, we'll just talk among ourselves and then we'll go get a, a Starbucks. 
People are going, let's do that, let's do that, that sounds good. All right, practical step. Treat leaders as apprentices rather than students. With a student, there's information I need to transfer, then I need to test and see if they uh, understood the information, see if they can spit it back to me. And that's the way we do leadership development a lot, just information transfer. The reality is, is if I have an apprentice, I know that that apprentice someday needs to be able to do what I do. They need to be able to take my, my position. In fact, here's how we built that in at Seacoast. This was a, a huge aha moment for us. What we did is we began to say to our leaders, who's going to replace you? But we, we, did, we put a little fun around it. This was fun for me. I was executive pastor. So I'd sit down with one of our campus pastors and I would say, okay, dude, here's what's going to happen in this particular meeting. At the end of the meeting, I'm going to reach into my backpack. I'm going to pull out a gun. Because it was South Carolina, they thought it might be true, right? Because I'm going to pull out a gun. I'm going to shoot you. I hope that's okay. No hard feelings. But before I shoot you, I need to know who do I call to take your place? And then we would talk through that. We'd say, seriously, if you die or you decide to go someplace else or something happens, who takes your place? Tell me three names that you are meeting with on a regular basis that you're developing who could become the next campus pastor, the next small group leader, the next children's leader. And we did that from the top all the way down. Our senior pastor had three names that if he, if he died or if something happened to him, any one of those three people could step into, step into his place. Now, we kept those names confidential. In other words, he didn't tell the staff who those names were. We told the campus pastor, don't tell these people they're next, but develop them as apprentices. So that's what Jesus did, is he developed uh, apprentices along the way. The fourth thing Jesus did is he was involved in his leaders' lives. I mean, he was knee-deep in what was going on in his leaders' lives. I love the story when he goes, over to, he goes over to Peter's house and his mother-in-law doesn't feel well. And so what does Jesus do? He goes and prays for his mother-in-law. She's healed. She gets up. She begins to serve them. It's a one-paragraph story, but we learn a lot from that. Jesus knew Peter. Jesus knew where he lived. He went to his house. He cared about his mother-in-law. He, he, he healed his mother-in-law. He was deeply involved in his followers' lives. We see this again in uh, Luke chapter 5. It says, after this, Jesus went out and saw a tax collector named Levi sitting at the tax booth. And he said to him, follow me. And leaving everything, he rose and followed him. And Levi made him a great feast in his house. And there was a large company of tax collectors and others reclining at a table with him. I love this. Jesus Somehow he knows who Levi is and, and, and he, he invites Levi to become one of his followers. And what does Levi do? He's, he's new. He's brand new to this whole faith thing. He says, dude, I, oh, this is awesome. Let's have a party. I'll have a party at my house. We'll do a kegger. We're going to, I'll invite all my party buddies over. And we'll have them bring some, they'll bring some liquor too. It'll be great. It'll be crazy. We'll get the sinners here because that's who I hang out with. And then Jesus, what does he do? Jesus says what he should say, right? I'm a rabbi. I can't go to those kind of parties. I, I don't, you know, what about my reputation in the community? What will, you know, what will the other people say? I have, I have to up, you know, I love you. Levi, but we're not going to be able to do that. No, Jesus says, well, what time's the party? That sounds awesome. I'll be there. And he goes over to Levi's house and he hangs out with them. And he's just partying with the, with the sinners and the, you know, all of this people. And what happens? The other church people go, oh my gosh, what are you doing? You can't be hanging out with sinners. That's terrible. And Jesus says, that's what I do. 
<laughs> That's kind of my job, is, is hanging out with sinners. And the point I'm pulling out of that is he was hanging out in the environment with one of his new leaders. He was hanging out in his new leader's environment. You see, the mistake that I've seen, I grew up in the church, okay? And uh, I grew up in a pastor's home. And my, my dad is a great pastor, but he had this, this idea, and it kind of formed through his ministry. And his idea was, uh, and he passed it on to me, is that there needs to be a separation between the pastor and the congregation. There needs to be kind of this invisible wall. Well, you know them, you love them, but still you're separate from them. Otherwise, they won't respect you as a pastor and, and, and all of these kind of things. And really, what, where this grew out of for my dad is early on in his ministry, he became very close with, with some church members. And eventually those church members kind of came after him and he was hurt very deeply. And so for the rest of his life, he never connected closely with anyone inside the church again. And I have realized what a huge, huge mistake that is, this disconnected leadership idea, this idea that we're separate from the people that we lead. Here's the deal. Again, gang, uh, and maybe none of you think this, or maybe you none, none of you teach this. But gang, here's the deal. If that was a good idea, Jesus would have done it. If a better idea is to be knee-deep in your leaders' lives and to be in their house and you and, the, and, and the, they in your house and hanging out with their friends and going fishing together, if that's a better idea, that's what Jesus did, right? So, so getting deeply involved. So what are the practical steps? Very simple. And, and, and I mean this in a concrete way. If you don't already do this, get your leaders into your house. The more leaders you can get into your house, the better off you are. Have them over one at a time, 10 at a time, 50 at a time, weekly, whatever it is. But get them into your house. Get them into your home. Feed them while they're there. They want to see how you and your husband or you and your wife interact. They want to see how you raise your kids. Hey, truth is, they want to see what your house looks like. They want to see what kind of car you drive. They want to see what kind, of, what kind of plates you have in the kitchen. I mean, they want to know that stuff. I was working at, on staff at, at, at one church. And this is just all my wife and I know. I mean, this is our life. And so we just opened the doors. So we had a group of pastors that were working directly for me. They said, hey, guys, bring your wives. Come on over. We'll throw in some frozen Italian food and some iced tea. And we'll just, we'll just hang out. We'll just have fun. So we did, and they came over, and we're telling stories, and we're laughing, and tears are running down our face, we're laughing so hard, and toward the end, we kind of pray for each other, and it's just a lot of fun. And on the way out, one of the guys stopped me, he said, you know what, I've been in ministry for 30-some years, I've been on staff at this church for over 20, and this is the first time I've ever been in another pastor's home. And I was stunned. It's like, who wants to do life like that? You need to be in, you, your leaders need to be in your house. You need to be in their house. You need to know their kids' names. You know what? When their kid has a soccer game, you ought to be there, you know, cheering away. I do that once in a while. I'm the creepy old guy with no kids on the, on the field, you know. Why is he here? And I'm going, go, Toby. And the guy's going, his name's Tony. Yeah, that too, Tony. Yeah. You just get in, get knee deep in, in your leaders' lives. The next thing that Jesus did is he put his apprentices in tough situations. You put them in tough situations. Take a look at Mark chapter uh, five or Mark chapter six. I'm sorry. And he called the twelve, and he began to send them out two by two, and he gave them authority over the unclean spirits. He charged them to take nothing for their journey except a staff, 
no bread, no, no bag, no money in their belts, but to wear sandals and don't put on two tunics. How would you guys like to do that with your leadership team this week? Just call your leadership team together and say, okay, guys, here's what we're going to do. Next week, you guys are going to go out and you're going to heal people. And you're just going to go from town to town, preach the gospel, heal people. Don't take a suitcase. Uh, don't even take a car, ride the bus, and uh, you'll be fine. That's a tough assignment, isn't it? Jesus did it all the time. I love this. I lo- when, when, when the feeding of the 5,000, right? Do you, you guys, don't you love this part of the story? When the disciples come and say, Jesus, what are we going to do? All these people, they're hungry. We got to send them home. They need to go home and eat. And Jesus says, eh, it's too far for them to go eat. What are you guys going to do? No, seriously, guys, what are you going to do? And they're like, ah, what's Jesus doing there? It's not an accident. Oh, he wants them to say, Jesus, you do it. No, he's not. Jesus isn't a trickster. He doesn't manipulate. He's, he's doing something here. Why is he doing that? He's given them a tough assignment. This one was over their heads. They couldn't figure it out. That's okay. Jesus stepped in. He helped them out. He, he, he uh, produced the food, you know, the bread and the fish and all of that. But first, he assigned them something over their heads. That's what we need to do with our leaders. That's how we develop leaders. What's the mistake that we make? We just make leadership too easy. And this is a big temptation, huge temptation. When we recruit a leader, and this is my own dysfunction, maybe you don't do this, but when I'm talking to a new leader, sometimes I kind of oversell the job. You know, we, we need somebody to be our children's director. You love kids. You've been serving our children's ministry. We think you would do a great job. It's really not that hard. Um, you know, we're going to give you all the support you need. We're going to, you know, send you to conventions and training and, and, and volunteers. Don't even worry about volunteers. People love to change kids' diapers. They love it. They, love, they come out of the woodwork. I mean, they, you'll have more diaper changers than you know what to do. Just, just, yeah, take this little job as children's director, and then they get in over their heads. Here's, here's the reality. The less, um, the less you ask of a leader, the less you're going to get. And what that means is, is if you give a leader just this little kind of soft job, they're going to do this little kind of soft job at it. In other words, if you say, I need you to serve just once a month. If you could just come once a month, shake a few hands, that's all I'm asking. They'll show up maybe every other month and that's all the commitment you'll ever get. I've learned this over the years. When I'm honest with people and give them big assignments and I say, hey, um, we need you to do this big, this big job. We need you to really step up to the plate. Uh, it's every week. I need you there early. I need you to stay late. I need you to interact with people. Um, we're going to support you. I'm going to be there with you. We're going to give you the training that you need. But this is a big job. You know what? You get a, a lot of people will turn that down. That's fine because they're not the leader you're looking for. But when you write, find the right leader, they will step up to the occasion. So the less you ask, the less you'll get. Um, so let me give you a practical step. The practical step is to give big assignments. A guy moved to uh, Charleston when I was at Seacoast, and he had been in his, he had just retired. He had been the CEO of a Fortune 500 company moved to Charleston. He had run, you know, this company for several years. And when he first came, he got on our parking team. So he would park cars. And then he was on our greeters for a while. And and eventually he became a small group leader. And he just wasn't engaged. I mean, he was just, he was on the periphery. We kind of got to know him. We found out a little bit about his background, got to know him a little bit better. 
And finally, I sat down with him as I, as, as I got to know him, got to know his potential and all of that. And I sat down and I said, Byron, here's the deal. We're doing this multi-site thing. You've been helping us a little bit along the way, giving us some advice. But the reality is, is it's bigger than any of us. The whole operational financial side is way over our heads. We're preachers. We barely even know how to do that. And here's what we need. Byron, we need you not just to volunteer once in a while. We need you full-time. And we need you not just full-time. We need you to run our operations. We want you to be our chief operating officer, take over all the operations of the church. And here's the good news. We can offer you a pretty, a pretty good package to do this. You might want to write this down. Here's our offer for you. We're not going to pay you a dime, okay? So here's the deal. Full-time job, huge responsibility, and you don't get paid a dime. And he said, huh, let me think about that. Yeah, that sounds about right. I'm in. Let's do it. And for six years, he served for free overseeing our 15, 14 campuses, all of our budget, all of those things. I did the ministry side. He did the finance side. Big leaders want big assignments. If you want big leaders, then you need to give them big assignments. Okay? That's what Jesus did. Okay? Next thing. That's the fifth thing. Sixth thing that Jesus did is he taught in public and he debriefed in private. It says in Matthew chapter 13, Then he left the crowds and went into the house. And his disciples came to him saying, Explain to us the parable of the weeds of the field. And you guys know this. Jesus did it all the time. He would teach a parable to to the, the crowds, but then he would debrief it in private. And the disciples actually learned more from the Q&A than they did from the parables. The mistake that we make is we expect lectures to teach leadership. We expect people to learn leadership from our classroom environment or from our sermons. You know, I'm a preacher. I love to preach. But something I've learned about preaching and teaching in a large group environment is, is, is it merely introduces concepts. What I'm saying today, even if it was the most awesome lecture I've ever given, it will introduce concepts. Then you will go away and you may or may not apply it. So Jesus would give the concepts in public, but in private, he would debrief it with, with, with his followers. So a practical step is to include your apprentices in the process. What we did at Seacoast is we started on Monday mornings or Monday afternoons. We would have a meeting where we would bring a lot of our young leaders in. Now, because they were on staff, we'd do it during the day. If they were volunteers, I would do it at night. We would bring young leaders in and we'd say, okay, this is what we think we're going to preach on this weekend. Uh, what, what do we need to know about that? What scriptures can you think of about that? What illustrations do we need to give? What questions do you have? How would you preach this message? And we would get tons of input. And I'll be, I'll be honest with you, for me, on the weekends when I preached, these meetings were sometimes helpful, sometimes not, because I kind of prepare over in a corner. That's kind of how I'm wired up. But they were hugely beneficial for the leaders who came. They learned a ton, not just about sermon preparation, but learning about how to, how to exegete the Bible, how to understand the needs of the people, how to apply that in their lives. And then what we would do is on Thursdays, and we did it during the day. I would do it at night today if, if I was working with volunteers. But we would do a sermon run-through. And we would bring those same leaders back in and we would preach through the whole sermon on Thursday, which, by the way, is brutal. It is so hard to preach to five people a message that you're only about two-thirds done with. But we would do it. And then we would sit down at a table and we'd go, okay, guys, what do you think? What works? What doesn't? What needs to be changed? Um, And again, 
sometimes hugely helpful for us, always helpful for the young leaders. One time I did it, I was speaking on the weekend, and I did the Thursday run-through, and at the end I sat down at the little table in the front of the auditorium. I said, okay, guys, what'd you think? Now, all these guys worked for me, so they were a little kind of nervous, a little, little quiet. I said, well, no, no, guys, what'd you think? Finally, one of the guys said, well, I like your shirt. I said, okay, other than my clothing, what do you guys think? One guy said, well, I'll be honest with you, Jeff. I didn't get it. It didn't make any sense to me. And I said, well, I kind of understand what you're saying because it didn't make any sense to me either. How many of you have ever done that? Preached a sermon that didn't make sense? Have you? A few of you? And usually it's about halfway through on Sunday morning, right? And about halfway through you go, I don't even believe this stuff. Why would these... Well, for us, we started figuring it out on Thursday instead of Sunday morning. Hugely beneficial. And then on the weekends after the message, we'd sit down with the same group. We would debrief again. So they're learning. Not just, not all of them become preachers at all. But they learn the process and how it works. And it's a leadership development. We also did it with pastoral care. So if we were going to go to the hospital grab a young leader, take them with you. If we're going to do a funeral, grab a young leader, take them with you. If we're going to do a wedding, grab a young leader, take them with you. In some counseling situations, say to the couple, hey, do you mind if Bill comes in? I like bouncing things off of another guy. He he keeps it in complete confidence, but it's really helpful for me. And if they say yes, then you bring that young leader in and he learns or she learns how counseling and pastoral care and all that stuff works. And you teach them Uh, uh, in public, you debrief in private. The next thing that Jesus did is Jesus treated each leader as an individual. He treated John different than he did Thomas and different than he did Peter. In fact, he told Peter in the 21st chapter of John, Peter turned and saw the disciple whom Jesus loved following them. And when Peter saw him, he said to Jesus, Lord, what about this man? And Jesus said to him, if it is my will that he remain until I come, what is that to you? You follow me. Jesus said, different strokes for different folks. Different leaders require different stuff. The mistake that we make is a one-size-fits-all leadership development. We got the kit. We got the class. We got the book. We're all going to go through this book together. And there's, there's definitely value to that. But the real value is when we, we customize the leadership for the leader. So how do we do that? A couple of practical steps. The first thing that we do is <clears throat> we use tools that are available. Tools like DISC and Strength Finders and Spiritual Gift Assessment. Mac Lake's in the back back here. Everything I know about leadership that's correct, I learned from Mac. I made up the rest of this stuff. But Mac introduced me to Strength Finders a few years ago. Hugely helpful in building my teams going, okay, we have these strengths, we need these strengths, but also interacting with other leaders. One of the things Mac did for us when he was at Seacoast is for a while, our name tags, either in our office or if we wore a name tag, it listed our strengths. So we learned, we knew, this leader is strong here, so this is how I I, I work with them. We also work that way with DISC. And then also in that customized leadership piece is to speak leadership into your apprentice. And this is huge. Call leadership out of them. Speak things that you see happening rather than necessarily what you see today. Jesus did this. Here's where Jesus did this. It was awesome. Jesus is talking to, 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 to Peter. It's, his name's Simon, right, early on. And, and Jesus says to him what? He says, dude, we're changing your name. 
you're now going to be the rock. Is that cool? Wouldn't you love to be the rock? I would love Jesus to come up and say, Jeff, it's kind of a wimpy little name and it's spelled G-E-O-F-F, which is kind of British, which is weird because you've never been there. So that's weird. Here's what we're going to do. You're now the rock. Wouldn't you like to be the rock? And then what did Jesus say? And on this rock, I'm building my church. You say that to a leader? That should... You're fired up right now, aren't you? You just want to go out and win people to Jesus just because Jesus, the rock. So that's what you do. You look at leaders. You don't go, well, we got a lot of development to do. Well, you go, you know what I see in you? I see a leader, dude. I see you leading big groups of people. We got a lot of work to do. You're a mess right now. Jesus later later says to Satan, or to Peter, and we'll talk about this in a minute. He calls him Satan, right? So Peter's like, am I the rock or am I Satan? I'm confused. You're going to be the rock. We're going to get there, okay? The next thing that Jesus did, the eighth thing that Jesus did is, is he was honest with his leaders. He told them the truth. He spoke the truth in love. I won't read the verse, but it's the verse I just talked about where Peter says, Jesus, you're not going to be, this isn't going to happen. You need to stop talking like this. And Jesus turned to him and said, get behind me, Satan. And he rebuked him. He told Peter the truth. He said, dude, you are way off base right here. And here's the mistake I make. You guys may not make this mistake. The mistake I make is misplaced kindness. See, I have a dysfunction. I want you to like me. I want everyone to like me. I want to be known as the funny pastor, right? That is kind of soft and warm and fuzzy and people just like to be around me. And so what I will do is I will be kind. And so a leader will be off track, off base. They'll be going down the wrong track. And I'll try to find the kind way to talk to them about it. Or I won't talk to them at all. I don't want to hurt their feelings. I don't want to have a big confrontation. Then confrontations are icky, right? Let's just all get along. Let's just all be friends. They'll figure it out. I'll, I'll, I'll pray for them. That'll be fun. That'll be great. I've made this mistake through the years of my ministry. I've, I've seen times where we have let kindness destroy a person. I can think of an instance where there was a confrontation that needed to happen and, and not just a confrontation. Confrontation's easy, you know, that's a piece of cake. It's the walking out after the confrontation. It's the practical steps that go with that. And we needed to have that conversation. We needed to go down that path. But instead, we kind of both just kind of danced around it and stayed kind. And how you doing? I'm doing good. How are you? Good. How are the kids? Good. And we just kept doing the kindness dance, you know, and kept going and kept going. And while I was doing the kindness dance, they were doing the bitterness dance. And by the time we got around to the discussion, there was deep bitterness there. And it wound up being ugly and hurtful and nasty in a way it didn't have to be. If way back here, we had just had an honest conversation, speak the truth in love. And that's what Jesus did. He spoke the truth in love. The ninth thing that Jesus, or let me give you practical steps. I'm sorry, real quick. Give clear expectations. Don't oversell the job. Don't undersell the job. Here's what we expect from leaders in this particular position. Uh, Have what I talked about, honest conversations. Again, being mean, being confrontational, that's easy. Honest conversation is a lot harder. Honest conversation says, I love you. I've been to your house. You've been to my house. I love your kids. I love your wife. There is so much good about what is going on in your life. I affirm who you are. There's an area that you're going to have to help me understand because this just isn't, this just isn't sitting and we, we have to work through the ugliness that is this. That's what an honest conversation is. And then give them opt-out options. I love Jesus 
in, uh, I think it was, was it John chapter 6 when Jesus gives the uh, teaching about if you want to follow me, you must eat my flesh and drink my blood. Now, today, oh, he means communion. Then, that was weird. That was just freaky stuff. Eat my flesh, drink my blood. And do you remember what it says after that? A lot of disciples left. A whole bunch of them who we don't know their names disappeared. And what did Jesus do? Did he yell at them? Did he call them back? No, he turned to the rest of the disciples and what did he say? Do you guys want to leave too? Open door. Give people opt-out options, leader opt-out options. One time I was at Seacoast, I was speaking on an uh, a, a, a all-staff meeting and I gave the Gideon illustration. You know when Gideon had the big army and it was too big? And so the first thing Gideon did is, hey, if any of you guys want to go home, if any of you guys aren't sold out, if this is scary for you, it's okay. Don't worry about it. We're not, we won't condemn you. Go on home. And I said that to our staff. I said, hey, guys, if this isn't a mission for you, if this is just a job, don't feel guilty about it. It's okay. But this, this, the working here is for people that are on a mission. And so if you don't feel that way, let us help you transition into a job that's just a job. And one of our guys came up afterwards and he said, I love Seacoast, but this is just a job for me. He said, fine, let's help you. And he transitioned into another job. He still volunteers at the church, loves his job, loves the church. Give your, give your leaders opt-out options. The ninth thing that Jesus did, and then this was huge, he spent three years developing 12 men. Three years, 12 followers. And his, his, his success rate was not all that great. Three years, 12 guys, and only 93% of them passed the course. Okay? One guy didn't make it. If the Son of God took three years to develop 11 leaders, why do we think that we can do turbo training? Why do we think we can do a six-week class? We need lots of leaders. We can speed it up. We can make this happen. Guys, like I said at the beginning, slow down. It takes time. Practical steps. Recognize it's a marathon, not a sprint. Church planners, please, do me a favor. If you watch Twitter, then you see the amazing numbers that are out there. We baptized 3,000 people today, and there are only 2,000 in the whole town, which is amazing. You know, we had record attendance again. Greatest weekend we ever had. And you're plodding along, and you're seeing a little bit of growth, and, you're, and, and you just get depressed when you see that on Twitter. Here's good news for you. Twitter is an opt-in service. If you get depressed after reading someone's tweets, stop following them, okay? Turn off the stream. Say to yourself, it's a marathon, not a sprint. Seacoast Church, I told you, it grew from 1,000 to 3,000, from 3,000 to 12,000. What I didn't tell you is in the first five years, Seacoast did never hit the opening Sunday attendance again. They had 350 the first Sunday, five years, never had 350 again. My brother Greg, who started it, calls it the slowest growing megachurch in America, okay? It's a marathon. Don't give up. Uh, Be okay with slower growth. It's exactly the same thing as the first practical step. Be okay with slower growth. Hang in there. Figure it out. But the important thing is intentionally develop a small group of leaders. And I apologize. I'm way over time. I'm going to hit one more. Last one. Jesus didn't give his leaders a template to follow. He gave them a mission to accomplish. And I think that's huge for leadership development. I'm not going to read through it. You know the Great Commission. Jesus said in the Great Commission, what did he do? What was the instructions? Go make disciples baptize them in the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Go get them. 
That was it. That was the whole plan. That's why we have blogs today, so we can argue about who's doing it right and who's doing it wrong, because Jesus didn't give us a template. He said, go make disciples, baptize them, go. And the mistake that we make is we micromanage. We get leaders, and then we say, okay, turn left, turn right. Okay, it needs to be four and a half inches, not four and a quarter inches. Oh, I can't believe the T-shirts are blue. I want the T-shirts green. And we just micromanage every little piece. And the reality is, is we may get the show exactly like we want it. We may get the sound perfect. We may get the lights just gorgeous, and it may all go the way our little perfectionist tendencies want it to be, but we've developed zero leaders, okay? Here's how you develop leaders. Let me give you practical steps. Cast a big vision, and we got a big... We're going to make it hard for people to go to hell from our community. We're going to turn our community upside down. There are people who are falling through the cracks, and we're the ones who are going to make a difference in this city. And you are the people to do it. Now, let me give you a step-by-step process of how we're going to do this in our community. I have no idea. That's why I've been working with you guys, because you know how to do it. Now, let's get busy. Now, I've oversimplified, but you understand what I'm saying is that's leadership development. And then let your leaders take it from there. Let your leaders take it from there. All right.